Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. On this episode, I dive into the world of electromagnetic spectrum operations with Colonel Joshua Kozlov, the commander of the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing. As the wing commander, Colonel Kozlov oversees his wing's primary mission to provide rapid electronic combat power to commanders during peacetime, through crisis, and in war. His in-depth knowledge of the subject provides immense clarity and education on this rapidly evolving and immensely important Air Force and Joint Mission. Please join us. Well, Colonel Kozlov, thank you so much for being here. In my research for this, what I really discovered was I did not know a whole lot about the electromagnetic spectrum. There's a lot to discover here, and this is probably one of the fields that's changing most rapidly. So I really appreciate you taking the time to educate me and educate our listeners on this subject. So thank you for being here. No, thank you, Badger, for the tremendous opportunity to reach your students and the listeners of your podcast. And I'm very excited for the opportunity and I look forward to talking about the EMS. Excellent. Let's maybe define some of these acronyms and find our terms up front. So we'll use the words electromagnetic spectrum, electromagnetic operating environment, electromagnetic spectrum operations, electronic warfare. So what do all these terms mean and how do they kind of interact in this space? Yeah, it's a really confusing thing. I appreciate the opportunity to try to make sense of it. The first thing is that the EMS is the natural spectrum of radio frequencies that just exist in nature and that we've discovered and the ability to use those for various capabilities. The electromagnetic environment is like our interaction with that environment is kind of the simplest way to think about that. And then electromagnetic spectrum operations are the things that we do from a military perspective to either gain advantage or defeat our adversaries in order to achieve Joint Force Commander's objectives. And so that's the simplest way of looking at it. I am old, and so I still catch myself using electronic warfare, which is basically the warfare portion of our electromagnetic spectrum operations. So they're all related, they get used interchangeably, but there is some differences between the various terms. I see. And so electronic warfare was kind of the offensive piece. In general, the doctrine talks a lot about there's an offensive piece, a defensive piece. And so MSO, electromagnetic spectrum operations, tries to encompass all of that. That's accurate, 100%. Yeah. And so the old version of the doctrine was there was electronic warfare, And within that, you had three subsets of things, electronic attack, electronic warfare support, and electronic protect. And EMSO has grown because of the advancements of technology to include many more things, such as spectrum management, rapid reprogramming, and other types of functions that occur within the the EMS environment. And so we had to broaden our definitions a little bit to make sure we're encompassing things. One of the things that I kind of preach to folks, specifically in our wing, is that When you're talking about spectrum warfare and electronic warfare, you actually have to be very specific about what you're talking about and words matter. So being offensive in the spectrum could be a standoff jamming platform, but it could also be jamming capability coming off of decoys or individual jets and those types of things. Uh, Whereas defense could also be offensive in nature and protection is more about hardening ourselves pre-conflict. So there is some gray area there that words matter when it comes to the spectrum, but because of the advancement in technology, the need to expand our definition of EMS operations has grown. 
When I was reading the doctrine, it does spend a lot of time talking and providing these definitions, and it is because it is so nuanced in terms of what you were talking about. Before we get into too much of the operations, I want to just continue to kind of clarify these points, especially in the Air Force, a lot of emphasis on information warfare, AFDP 313 information operations has grown and a lot more intellectual thought has been put behind this. There's a lot of overlap between the EMS space and also information warfare, and that overlap is intentional. And sometimes that creates advantages and, and disadvantages and some confusion. So maybe we could talk about the interaction between information ops and cyber and, and EW. Thank you for that question. It's a difficult area that we still haven't quite figured out. So first off, just kind of, we'll start macro, right? So I'm really excited to talk about doctrine. Most people are not, but <laughs> doctrine is super important, right? And as an Air Force, we do a really poor job of adhering to and understanding and knowing our doctrine, like just in general of the other services. The joint services really spend a lot of time on understanding and using their doctrine and organizing around their doctrine, right? Even within joint doctrine, there's confusion about MSO and how this thing works, right? So the Army calls it Cyber Electromagnetic Activities, SEMA. So there's really not agreement amongst the services on the spectrum. And then when you add in things like information warfare, information advantage, information operations, it gets further muddled. I'll give you sort of the Air Force institutional position, and then I'll give you sort of my opinion and kind of go from there. So the Air Force institutional uh, position is that MSO is one of the six principles of information warfare. And that decision has been made, and we're not going to revisit that, right? There's owners, there's vetoers, there's influencers, and there's supporters, and we are in the supporter category of that definition. However, that doesn't mean all of MSO is underneath information warfare. Information warfare has to do with campaigning and developing operations, activities, and investments that achieve the commander's intent in order to drive a specific narrative or a specific outcome. All of EW and MSO is not part of that information warfare capability. It's how you integrate very different things in order to achieve commander's effects is the bottom line. So what I like to say is that, yes, MSO, electromagnetic spectrum operations, supports IW as a means by which you can drive the message or the effects that you're intending to achieve for the commander, right? And so what does that mean? Basically, that means just like the air domain, just like the sea domain, you can use various capabilities in our arsenal in a campaigning perspective to shape the information environment and create advantage for our decision makers. When it comes to IW, that doctrine is fairly new. It's pretty informed. In fact, I had the great fortune of the specific Pacific Air Force's examples they use in that doctrine was a team that I was fortunate to lead that came up with those types of things. And one of the things that drove us from an information warfare perspective is this, that the commander owns the narrative. And basically what that means is the narrative is driven by our strategy. No single office owns the message. And, you know, messaging information warfare is a cross-functional effort guided by the commander's intent and objectives, what they're trying to see, achieve. The second thing is the narrative drives operations, right? So information objectives must shape our operations. And it's more than pictures and articles. Every operation we do drives information advantage, right? Not just MSO, but every operation we do. So the example I like to use there is when we send the Air Force band to an orphanage in an ally or partner nation, that's an information operation. That's an information warfare capability. And the last thing is that while the narrative is consistent, 
the way we message is dynamic, right? And so we have to be able to have a long-term planning capability to cement our narratives, but we also need to have cross-functional responses that when crisis occurs, we can answer those. And MSO is definitely part of that because the spectrum is a, a massive communications. But when we're talking about breaking IADs of peer threats, that is not information warfare. And those capabilities and those planning functions are integrated through the joint fires process and the joint targeting process. And they are uh, considered a fire on par with our kinetic capabilities that are out there. So I know that that was a lot, but that's sort of the, the nuance there. And so we have to continue to work on this because there are some folks, this becomes a really emotional topic for some folks. And so there's a lot of work that we still have to do as an Air Force to more clearly define the boundaries between these things. What I will tell you is that as the commander of the Spectrum Warfare Wing, one of the common talking points is that we've had a couple of decades of decay in our electronic warfare capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. You can actually trace that decay to at one time the Air Force had an Air Force Electronic Warfare Center that focused on electronic warfare across the spectrum and delivered capabilities such as the EC-130, to name just one. That center was renamed the Air Force Information Operations Center, and you can pinpoint where the funding and requirements and resourcing of electronic warfare began to decline at that decision. The reason why words are important is once you lump capabilities, your ability to advocate and resource becomes less. And that's where doctrine really becomes important from a not just a warfighting perspective, but a force development perspective. Hopefully that answers your question. It does. So there's a great deal of overlap, but one is not encompassing of the other. And that is, I think, a very valuable point to understand. These are two separate things and they overlap, but one doesn't encompass the other. Right? It is the way I would look at that very simply in, in terms of my uh, small pilot brain here. One thing I'd offer there, and the way I teach it, this will drive some debate with people that care about this argument. And there's people that de definitely vehemently care about this argument. But the way that I, I kind of teach it sometimes to make it more sensical is that offensive capability or in EW is the same as offensive capability in cyber, is the same as in space. And the interrelationship and integration of those things are critical to driving impacts and achieving the Joint Force Commander's objectives. And then there is a component of being able to use those capabilities to drive information advantage or slow information decision-making the adversary. But at the end of the day, it's about the interrelationship of those distinct capabilities to achieve effects. And we can get lost in mumbo jumbo of definitions if we don't maintain a focus on integration, interrelatedness, and effects. That's an excellent segue. I'd like to actually, maybe it'll help kind of lay that groundwork. Maybe it'll help if we actually start moving into how do we kind of apply these individual effects? Because as I was looking at the broad application of EMS, like I said, I didn't really appreciate this until I started looking at how this basically touches everything. It was interesting when you brought up the messaging and narratives that we're working on a, an orders production doctrine at LeMay, and we worked a lot with the Army, and the Army has changed their orders process in order to include themes and messaging across the five-paragraph order instead of buried into an annex because it touches everything. And it was interesting when you made that connection between MSO and narrative, how MSO touches everything as well. And so it started pulling those together. 
Let's start with effects. And so in the Air Force, our approach to operations is effects-based approach to operations. And so when I think about electromagnetic spectrum operations, how do I think about that differently in terms of effects? And maybe I would think of bomb on target. It, it seems much more a different mindset, if you will. Yeah, good question. And it shouldn't be a different mindset. And so this is one of the key things that folks like me have to do a better job of explaining to our forces. So the first thing, Joint Doctrine and Air Force Doctrine indicate that the unit of action for MSO is something called in the joint environment, the Joint Electromagnetic Spectrum Operations Center. And that should be lumped into your warfighting command through the J3. At the Air Force level, we have what's called the MSOC, the Electromagnetic Spectrum Operations Center. And that previously had been called like a non-kinetic effects coordination cell or an EW effects coordination cell. And that is put through the AOC, the Air Operations Center. And so from a warfighting perspective and from a operations perspective, from a fires perspective, the way that should work is through the normal tasking flow as the Air Force builds an ATO that MSO, EW systems, are integrated into the objectives of the day. So as a simplistic example, if we're going to fly against an IANS and our targets are inside of a very serious set of surface action missiles, the planners at the MSOC at the Air Force level at the AOC, which the AOC by itself is also joint, right? So you have the Battlefield Coalition Detachment there, you have the NAIL there, which is a Naval Liaison, you have the Marley there, which is the Marine Liaison, and you have the Space Force there as well, which is liaising. And so as you build your plan to ingress and strike that desired impact point, you have to build a plan by which you knock down the threats that are will either attack our weapons or attack our airplanes as we go into that weapons engagement. And so that should all be seamless and integrated at the operational level. And the authorities to target those systems should be held at the tactical level via electromagnetic coordination authority. You know, when I was a young guy, we called that the jam control authority, but we have to get an OPR bullet and change names. You know, your air crews have to know what they're cleared to hit in support of those strikes. And then you build your battle plan. And then it's up to tactical execution with mission commanders and package commanders after that. And so from an effects perspective, at the Air Force level, everything is for electromagnetic spectrum operations and at the joint level is coordinated at the operational level with direction and guidance passed down to the tactical level. Let me use this example. There might be a system that a space system should be primary of working on. If, if space were to fall out or cyber, it doesn't matter, pick a different capability other than an MSO position. How does that get transmitted to the secondary, which might be an, a medium altitude airplane, whether that's joint or, or not, how do they know that they now have to pick up that priority target? That's one reason why that's important. The second reason why it's important is from an institutional perspective, our, uh, while very similar, our space operations and our cyber operations and our MSO operations doctrine is separate. And they're organized, trained, and equipped separately. And so therefore, that seamlessness doesn't always exist. And there's some, there's some seams that can only be adapted and controlled at the operational level through the MSOCs and the GEMSOCs. Now, one other piece of that is just unfortunately is those operational functions today across our force are not standing functions. There's not a standing function, GEMSOC function at our combatant commands, and there's not standing MSOCs in our air operations centers. And so, and there is also no planned or programmed joint training events in order to train 
these critical operational centers of gravity to do their wartime mission. And so while our doctrine does a very good job of laying out what we will need to do to drive effects, operationally, we haven't fulfilled that. And so there's another connection to why understanding doctrine is very important as we make decisions with our personnel. There's a quote from Chief Brown here, and perhaps you're already answering this, talking about how far we have to go, but I want to share it just for the audience. He stated this is a work in progress, and the biggest block to doing this is a mind shift. Often we think of electromagnetic warfare as a supporting effort to enable some other weapon systems or capability in modern warfare. EW may be the main effort to achieve the desired strategic effects, especially in the pre-conflict phase where we ideally deter a fight from happening in the first place. Our joint concepts and operational plans are progressing towards this reality, but I think we have room for improvement. And so what's interesting is you say there's a lot in doctrine that's already there. Do you think, well, I don't want you to put words in the chief's mouth, but as you interpret that, would that be we have more to do in training or we have more to do in planning or our doctrine needs to evolve or maybe all three? Oof. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to put words in the chief's mouth, but yeah. <laughs> I will say that there's room to grow in all three, right? So the new doctrine, the 3 Tech 85 that's coming out is really a good document. But the fact is it's going to have to change rapidly over the next few years. The reason for that is technology is pushing us to change rapidly the way we employ in the spectrum. The long range nature of a peer fight is going to make some of the things in our doctrine obsolete, quite frankly. We have installation security. You're able to put these MSOCs together and instead of distributed control, mission command. We've got to work that stuff into the doctrine that it hasn't quite worked in. From a training perspective, absolutely. The mind shift is that if we're attacking an IAD, sometimes we may not need to bomb the target that I talked about earlier. Sometimes we may just need to functionally disable it in order to achieve our effects. That's a mindset change in terms of how we employ the Air Force. So there's definitely things that Spectrum can do and other capabilities can do that can have the same effect as a weapon. Uh, we've got to be able to organize, train, and equip around that and be able to integrate that into the warfighting scheme of maneuver. And then finally, the, the last thing I touch on is in that training vein is that our allies and partners are critical to our success in a peer fight, and they read our doctrine much more than we do. I've been quoted Air Force doctrine more by coalition members than Air Force members. We need to make sure that we're not confusing them because they're making decisions about the organization training and equipping of their forces based on our doctrine, which is how we intend to fight. And so kind of building off of that, you mentioned some of the challenges going forward. The technology you mentioned most multiple times has moved forward. So as we look at the doctrine, the forward itself has a statement, what worked in the past will work in the future, but not in the same way. So how does this future operating environment change, MSO, and what are some of the big challenges that's forcing us to have to continually rethink MSO? Really good question. Really difficult stuff. So we're rapidly moving into a world where the ability to sense and see things globally is becoming pedestrian and every day. The ability to hide is going away rapidly. And so think about it as like an offensive lineman to open holes for the running back to get through, right? And now it's really hard to mask where we're coming from. And so we have to be able to mature our warfighting capabilities at the same time as we're developing our operational concept. And doctrine has to try to keep up with that. I mean, it's very hard to do. I think that, again, I'm a doctrine nerd. I, I love it. I say it's a book about cooking, but not a cookbook. Some folks will say that it's a 
box to think outside of. That's kind of where we're at now when you look at the joint warfighting concept and our the Air Force's mission command concept and the Air Force's distributed command and control concepts is that the concepts are moving faster than the doctrine, which is awesome, but we have to be able to articulate what the changes will be and what the integration and inflection points will be as we move forward. In MSO specifically, there's kind of three kind of key things that I tend to think about. The first one is ability to move data from the edge of conflict back to the folks that are developing combat capability. Our doctrine has to account for the need to rapidly develop new combat capability in the spectrum. The spectrum is not an acquisition program where it takes a long time to build an airplane or a weapon or those kinds of things. It's waveforms uh, based off of data, based off of RF energy. And so the ability to hack that system is sometimes how I talk about it and be able to use data, manipulate data, and get it back out to warfighters quickly based on what the cat and mouse game is happening is absolutely critical. The second thing that I think is really important is that as the rise of the spectrum increases in importance, like if we, like just to be frank with you, and I talked about this a lot in the public space and so of our senior leaders, but if we lose in the spectrum, we're going to lose any conflict very quickly. Like we just, we cannot lose in the spectrum. But as, so as the importance of the spectrum increases, the amount of people that we're deliberately developing to work MSO issues is decreasing. So as a force, we need to get our arms around the profession of MSO or do a better job and or, I should say, a better job of making sure all of our force is understanding of what the MSO scheme maneuver is, what MSO doctrine is, and, and how to integrate those types of things. And then finally, we have to be able to mature our doctrine once it reaches successful concept completion, because that's how we drive our requirements and our resourcing for the things that we're going to do. Our doctrine today says we're going to have MSOCs and they're going to or operationally command and control electronic warfare, but none of those are manned. And we're not training people to man those. Uh, we've done it in the past. We've gotten by with brute force and throwing bodies at the problem. In the global war on terror, we often say that we our EW expertise atrophied during that time. And that's somewhat true. But if you look at the work that Air Force electronic warfare did, specifically in the improvised explosive device fight and the hunting of terrorist fight, it's pretty impressive. And that all drove from this cadre of folks that had been working in these operational cells, integrating with our partners to make things happen. So you've got to be able to use your doctrine to drive the requirements to resource the things you need. And so those would be my three, is keeping pace with the threat, developing the people, and then using the doctrine to resource the systems that you need or capabilities that you need or the effects that you need. I like that. There's some overlap there. You were talking about the constant focus on training as the technology itself is evolving, as the challenges, the way it is applied is changing. And so that's a constant tail chase, trying to keep people up to date as the technology changes. But you also mentioned the number of career folks actually working in this spectrum. And the way I imagine that is there's a lot being turned over to automation or it's just the traditional you know, electronic warfare officer, the EWO in the back of an aircraft is being replaced with a box, or maybe we could just dive into that a little bit, because I think that's a very interesting point, and, and I don't want to breeze over it so that we can kind of really understand that problem. Yeah, really, thank you for that. There's a lot of things, I should say, that contribute to that problem set. One is like the Air Force is technologically advanced force. The thing with the spectrum is that it's always, from the beginning of time, it's been a cat and mouse game in terms of seeking advantage. I know from the beginnings of use of the spectrum to today, I can give you 15 examples 
of the cat and mouse game. The IED is a very good example of that. D-Day has very good examples of that. Their Operation Bolo is a very good example of that. They're in our history. There's all these cat and mouse games that have been played with the spectrum, and that will continue. The advent of stealth, we thought that that would make the need for jamming and those types of things less important, but it, the adversary voted and developed capability to counter our stealth systems, right? And so, yes, in a lot of ways, automation or containers have made it so that the number of people that are on airplanes that are focused on EW things are less. But on the back end of that, the, all of those systems, specifically in the modern world, are what we call software defined, which means they're data defined, which means there's a back end of people that are developing the data that goes into those systems in order for them to do their job in an automated fashion. There's still a, a large body of people. They may not be traditional electronic warfare officers like me. I happen to be a EC-130 guy focused on communications jamming for most of my career and a little bit of radar jamming, but it might be a 62 Echo, an engineer. It might be a 15 Alpha who's an ops research analyst. It might be your maintenance career fields on the enlisted side. That profession exists in the stovepipes of platforms as opposed to the MSO profession, if you will. And so as we move forward, in order to kind of get after that problem that you highlight, we have to get our arms around those folks in order to make sure that even though we're automating, that you still got Billy in the in the loop and Billy's going to be making changes to what the box is doing on the jets or the, the platforms themselves. Excellent. So just losing the career field doesn't mean we get to lose the corporate knowledge. And I can see where that's the issue is we have to still maintain the corporate knowledge of how this is done, even though it moves towards automation. The Biden administration has recently released the National Spectrum Strategy. And to my knowledge, this is the first time we've ever come up with a strategy for the spectrum. And it really highlights some of the difficulty of working in your space is that we can think in terms of fighting in the spectrum, but the spectrum is used by a lot of agencies to do a lot of things we really love, including have this meeting right here. So why specifically would they release the strategy and why now? What's changed and what's different? Oh, really good question. So it kind of, I'll start with, it goes a little bit from a military perspective to our choice of domains. The EMS is not a warfighting domain. And that decision has been made, and we're not going to relitigate that. We are, as I said earlier, there's owners, vetoers, influencers, and supporters. And that decision has been made, and we are supporters of the decision that the domain that got created was cyber. There's no relitigation of that. But what's really important is our traditional domains, air, land, sea, and space, right? They're domains because they're global commons. It's one of the main things. Our national interests flow over those domains. And in the spectrum, our banking flows over those domains. Our ability to develop new cutting edge technology uh, flows over that domain. I mean, the, the dominant news story from a technology perspective is the stuff that's happened with OpenAI this week. That has massive economic impact on our nation going forward, and that's all based off of the spectrum. That national spectrum strategy is really important because as the non-military side continues to need and want and work within the spectrum, 5G for your kid's cell phone, 6G for your home computing networks, it's gradually encroaching on our ability to fight and train in the spectrum. And so being able to balance our national interests with our national security interests, which are the same, but they're co-related, is very difficult. We're rapidly approaching a place where our ability to operate and train in the live fly in the spectrum is decreasing as new technologies are developed because we have to share 
with the commercial space. And so how do we do that in a reasonable, responsible way? And how do we develop new technologies that allow us to do that seamlessly are tough problems. And so that's, I think, what the, the genesis of that strategy is. I wasn't involved in it. Uh, it's going to have massive implications for the DOD, particularly the Air Force, down the road. I'm glad you bring that up because I think I'm really starting to understand the problem a little better than I did prior to our conversation. As you're trying to fight in the spectrum, even in training inside a flag or maybe locally, at the same time, the space in which you're operating is getting pushed smaller and smaller by the you know commercial sector and any, any number of things. Yeah, there's a very complex problem that the strategy is getting after. You know, when we talked about earlier places, it will grow. Why doctrine is so important to us and we should know our doctrine is that in order to solve some of that training problem, we're going to have to move to the synthetic environment, mm-hmm. you know, physics-based high-end synthetic environments. And so as we're developing those environments, we have to make sure that they're supportive of the things that our MSO doctrine requires us to do. We can train the force the best possible way moving forward. I personally believe that the future is synthetic training for the most part with some PTT type stuff in the live fly. We'll never not live fly, but at the high end, we're going to have to move to a synthetic place. Excellent. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. So as a wing commander working in this space, what are kind of the biggest challenges that you face daily managing the wing, not just in the training, but also making sure you're prepared for the, the future operating environment? I can answer that question a lot of different ways. I can answer that way from an operational way, which is like, how do I prepare for war? I can answer that question from an administrative way, which is how do you build the Air Force's newest wing? And then I can answer that question from a stepping outside of it and what is this wing supposed to do, right? So the first thing I'll say is that in a resource unlimited environment, I would argue that we should be the first spectrum warfare wing, not the last. There are things in the spectrum that we don't do. This wing does not do directed energy. Our infrared portfolio, IR is very small. And so there's other things that there's a lot of other capability that we're leaving on the table when it comes to MSO that our doctrine dictates we're going to need to do. Spectrum management is one of those things. But we're not in a resource unlimited environment. We're in a resource constrained environment. And so we're really focused on the things on really two kind of critical pathways. So first pathway that we're really focused on is operationally being able to provide combat capability at the speed of relevance to our warfighters. And then the second one is the nuts and bolts of building the wing, which are where I spend a majority of my time is really kind of solving the requirements, the resources disconnect, and then being able to develop and get the talent I need in the organization in order to solve some of these wicked problems. Sir, thank you for that. One of the things I wanted to hit one more time as we near the end here is you talked a lot about joint and coalition integration. There's a lot of talk about the sharing of our doctrine, making sure we're all working off the same sheet of music and we're all using the same terminology. But in the national security strategy, we also talk about interagency integration. Does that play into the EMS space at all? It absolutely does. So first off with coalition and joint, this wing, I have the luxury, the great joy of commanding is a coalition and a joint wing. We have Brits and Aussies that work for us. We have Marines and sailors that work for us. Spectrum is inherently coalition and it's inherently joint. And so that poses a tough challenge because a lot of EMSO's combat capabilities are classified at varying levels. General Brown and leaders of the Air Force have talked about integrated by design, and that's really hard with some of the policy that's out there in order to be effectively do that. But anywhere we fight up here, there's going to be Aussies and Brits and other folks on our wings, and we have to be able to share our data and our capabilities with them in order to effectively fight in the spectrum and synchronize in the spectrum and the principles of warfare in the spectrum. You've got to be able to do all that with your coalition and joint partners, right? There's some significant policy challenges to being able to do that. 
it doesn't just come down to the doctrine piece. It comes down to the combat capability piece also. And so to make sure that they have the same capabilities we do so that we are interrelated and interoperable in the battle space is violently and critically important and will save lives. Sir, thank you very much. In closing here, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to speak directly to the force, directly to our audience. Uh, what should our airmen be thinking about as they seek to understand and incorporate IMSO into joint all-domain operations? Wow. Uh, yeah, thank you, Brad. So what I would say is that the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing is your belly button for operational MSO type functions. So if you have questions, reach out to us and uh, we'll, we'll help you out with that. There are a lot of other organizations that work on MSO type things in the Air Force, but we're the only wing unit of action that does it for a living. And so we're here for you. So reach out to us. Our wing, we're the newest wing in the Air Force. I don't let ourselves categorize us as new. We've been around for two years. We have three primary missions. That's rapid reprogramming. And I'll talk about each of these in a second. Target waveform development and assessment. And so what rapid reprogramming is, is I'm just going to tell you a story. Picture yourself in a wartime scenario against a peer threat in the Pacific. A four-ship of F-35s is leading a strike train of B-1s who are going to shoot long-range weapons against boats, against a very significant and violent IADS, Integrated Air Defense System. Now, the EW capabilities that are running inside that F-35 are the best possible that, that we had at the time. When they took off and they flew their six hour, eight hours, 10 hours to get to their target area, they had the best information possible in their jet. But the enemy gets a vote and the enemy is going to change their data and change their tactics. And they're going to shoot down one or a couple of our F-35s. And that's terrible, but that's the fight that we live in, right? But what needs to happen to make that sacrifice worth it is that that war reserve mode, that new electronic warfare data that came off of RED, it gets transmitted back to people that can manipulate that new piece of data, create new combat capability, and push that back out to the force. And not just for the F-35, but also for the B-1s that were shooting long-range weapons, for the weapons themselves, and for the rest of the Air Force and Joint Coalition assets that are in that fight, because that's a new threat. And so that's the essence of rapid reprogramming. Target waveform development is being able to deliver the nasty jamming waveforms for all of our platforms that can counter that red IADS and make it less of a threat. And then finally, with assessment, that is the ability to say we're ready or not ready to fight in the spectrum. How are our exercises preparing us? Are our jets from a maintenance perspective ready to go? How are our waveforms performing against specific threats? We need to build that architecture to enhance our readiness as a joint force. So to meet those three missions, rapid reprogramming, target waveform development, and assessment, there's sort of five things that I just really need help on and look forward to the force to help me out with it. The first kind of most critical thing that I talk about is something called crowdsourced flight data. What crowdsourced flight data is, is the ability to take EW data off of all of our platforms or any of our sensors across the joint force and be able to use that data to create new combat capability. This is sort of in the Air Force, We've always done this from an industrial-based production timeline, and this data is for this platform, and we've got to think new and differently about this. Once I have that data, that cross-source flight data, I need a way, I need a data architecture. That's the second thing I need in order to curate, store, manipulate, manage all of that data, because it's going to be a lot of data, right? So you need that data architecture in order to, to support that crowdsource flight data capability. But the next thing you need is something that is a buzzword. In our wing, we don't talk about buzzwords, and that's a problem in the spectrum, and folks will buzzword you to death, and some of it doesn't even mean anything. Cognitive EW is one of those buzzwords. 
And what we mean when we say cognitive VW is the algorithms, the AI machine learning algorithms that can help us carve through that tremendous amount of data that we're going to receive in order to quickly identify what are new threats, what are what are changes to threats, and what are the that allow us to focus on where do we need to develop new combat capability. And then the next thing I need in order to do that is a transport layer. And so we call that electromagnetic battle management. That's a capability that the Air Force is developing. And that's the ability to move large amounts of electronic warfare data back and forth from the edge as quickly as possible to the means by which we'll be able to target faster. When we talked about authorities earlier, you'll be able to program in priorities of effects and against red systems in there. And then the final thing is you got to be able to assess that whole process to be able to give the Joint Force Commander or the CFAX or JFAX of the world a true understanding of their ability to execute and successfully close multiple kill chains and kill webs in that hostile environment. And MSO, at the end of the day, when you do all those things, you've directly integrated it into the entire scheme maneuver rather than being a separate entity and doing its own separate thing. And so thank you for that. I hope it makes sense. And I look forward to any questions from anyone who uh, hears this and asks questions. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. The show is recorded, edited, and produced by the LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach Section. Special thanks to Colonel Kozlov, the LeMay Center, and Air University. As always, the views expressed by our guests and hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.